Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. Rodney Howard has been the longtime touring drummer for the pop star Avril Lavigne, but has also worked with so many artists over the years, including Gavin DeGraw, Joan Jett, Hart, Benny King, Osnoy, Chris Bodie, Lenny Pickett, and G.E. Smith, just to name a few. Rodney endorses Pearl Drums, Sabian Cymbals, Vic Firth Drumsticks, and Remo Drumheads. He's also been the sub-drummer on Saturday Night Fever, The Lion King, Little Shop of Horrors, Mamma Mia, Hairspray, The Color Purple, Frozen, Moulin Rouge, and is now the drummer for the Broadway musical Mrs. Doubtfire. We had a great conversation about touring, getting notes after subbing on shows, why it's important to use the same monitoring system as the person you're subbing for on a show, and many, many other important topics. Stick around because you're going to learn a lot from this guy. He's an incredible musician. Ladies and gentlemen, Rodney Howard. Welcome to Broadway Drumming 101. My guest today has played with so many people, it's ridiculous. Oz Noy, Lenny Pickett, G.E. Smith, The Lion King, Hairspray, Mamma Mia, Little Shop of Horrors, Joan Jett. Man, you are the king. And, and, and Avril Levine and Gavin, I was about to say Gavin Newsom. <laughs> <laughs> Gavin DeGraw, and he's he's the drummer for Mrs. Doubtfire. Rodney Howard, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to have, like, applause behind that. All right. Play on music. (laughs) Thank you for being part of my podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. And by here, I mean in my drum room talking (laughs) (laughs) via Zoom. (laughs) Yes, people that are listening to this cannot see the magnificent room that he's that he's oh that's right i've been watching the podcast i didn't realize it's a podcast by definition is usually not a visual thing yes but i'm gonna hopefully post this as well and have people see that the 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 wonderful blue drum set you got back there which is what matches your your shirt of michelle and deggy ocella which is my you read that oh yes Oh, he, check. Well, if you're, if you're looking, I'm very proud of this, actually. Yes, he has <laughs> a, very hard to find a T-shirt of her second album, which I think is her best one, in my opinion. And big. Pro- oh, first of all, props for even even recognizing that. And yes, the second one was the best. one. Yeah. Gene you know Lee. who you know who always argues with me about that? Bass players, because well, they love the first one. Oh, really? They, bass players always, always say plantation lullabies every time. It's cool, but this one was more cohesive to me. I know a lot of people like, oh, you know what? Where's my tangent alert button? There we go. I was about to call it on you myself. We're already on a tangent. It's going to be a long (laughs) ass interview. God damn. (laughs) Let's keep it between the dishes. Yes. So anyway, Michelle Ndegi Ocello is a fantastic singer, bass player, musician, songwriter. And I liked her first two records. Her third one was cool, but she started to go into a different direction, which I wasn't really into, but a lot of other people really enjoyed her stuff. It's just not for me. But, man, her second record is just killer, man. Ooh, yeah, that's man. the one, if you don't never heard of her, that's the one. That's the, like, if you can only buy one record. You know, they call a 
what were your your island records? Your your top Des- ten deserted Des- island Des- records? Yeah. Yes, that was that's definitely the one to get. But I think you should also get the Mrs. Doubtfire uh, cast recording. Did you record that already? No, we have not recorded that already. Ah, and yeah. as we record this, I don't know. If I'm don't mean to steal your thunder. If we're going to get into that, but we are currently on a nine week hiatus. Mm. And uh, we we uh, were told that uh, we are going to record that when we return. Okay. And to our producer's credit, which is actually pretty uh, representative of their. Uh, behavior in this whole thing they're very this is a family show and by family i mean it's literally about a family so a lot of people pay lip service to that kind of thing and i'm not gonna lie sometimes i hear that kind of thing it goes in one ear out the other this this show and this team and that production company have always acted like that so to that end when they told us we'd be on a nine-week hiatus they actually said we're going to do a cast album between x weeks and x weeks after we reopen and everybody okay. is back in their track and singing and playing everything and blah, blah, blah. And we are committed to having the original cast no matter where you guys go. So if wow. you are no longer with us in nine weeks, we love you. God bless you if you found something else. But you are still invited to sing your part and do your role on the cast album, which is kind of unheard of. Because, you know, in this business, it's like, yeah, that'd be nice, but we got to get this done, whatever. <laughs> you know, That's amazing. That's great. That's it great is. news. It really is. So, you know, usually I start from the very beginning of someone's life, but we're going to start backwards to a certain degree because we are in a interesting time. But I want to just ask you about Mrs. Doubtfire. That is the show that you are on. And tell me how you got into this particular show. This particular show the quote-unquote offer came to me via Broadway's Ethan Pop. If he heard that, he would think that was funny. Broadway's Ethan Pop, (laughs) who is the musical supervisor of uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. I had worked with Ethan on a couple of things. Uh, More notably, what people may know is uh, we were working on this show, Clueless, together, which, yes, was the the, uh, movie Clueless put on stage, which is not unheard of. in current Broadway. Um, But that never made it to Broadway, but that's how we met. That's how we worked together. And uh, I had been working, and this kind of ties back to you, so we're going to have to keep our hand on the tangent button here. (laughs) I was working on a musical called Diana, the musical at the time, which you are very familiar with, if I'm not mistaken. That is correct. (laughs) And uh, that's your opening to speak as much or a little about that as you'd like. Now, that was a lot of fun. Uh, I had a chance to do a workshop with that show before. Was it before you got it or after? Maybe before, from what I understand. It was it's maybe, 2018. Maybe a year or two before, maybe. Yeah, I think it was like the winter of 2018 I did that. So anyway, right. you, you were... I was working, um, I mean, to the point, I was actually already slated for whenever, I mean, we had rehearsed in New York, we had gone to La Jolla, California and uh, done the out of town and it was coming to Broadway and it was a done deal. While we were waiting for that to roll around for various reasons, um, for those of you that are listening that don't know how this works, a lot of times, even after a Broadway show is successful enough to go out of town and try it out, 
I guess, is that the common term, out-of-town tryouts? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times that doesn't mean that it immediately goes to Broadway. And a lot of times it's for various reasons. This particular one, ironically, was that Broadway was so inundated that there were no theaters available. You remember that, Clayton? That was crazy, right? That we yes. got from that to where we are now that quickly. <laughs> That's true. So, yeah, I got a call from Ethan Pop, and he said, I have this show, Mrs. Dalfire, love to work with you again. And, of course, I was like, ah, you know, I'm already doing a Diana thing, and I already spent a lot of time out of town because I had spent uh, all of January and a good bit of February in La Jolla already, away from my wife and home. And uh, my wife has always been amazing about putting up with me touring in China for a month and a half and, you know, to my first tour with Avril Lavigne was two years long, for God's sake. Wow. So she's always been really great about that. But at this point, I was like, you know what? I'm going to be a good husband and thank you, Ethan, but I'll say no. And then my wife and I had a discussion that night and we said, she goes, what? Um, you sure you want to say no to that? <laughs> he said, she said, well, it's just, why don't you do the rehearsals and the out of town? I mean, it doesn't look like Diana's happening anytime soon. And I said yes to that. We did the in-town rehearsals. We went out of town um, to uh, Seattle to do the out-of-town tryouts for Mrs. Doubtfire. My thinking being that Broadway being what it is, who knows? Maybe Diana will be put off for two years, a year, six months. It doesn't matter. Maybe Doubtfire won't happen as soon as they think. Who knows? So that was a very long way of saying that, you know, I was basically trying to stack my deck <laughs> and work on as many things as I could at the same time, you know? Like I had left uh, La Jolla to, and I went directly to Japan with Avril Lavigne for like two weeks at, right after that. So I'd been gone away from home for quite a bit. And then obviously by the time I got home and then you chop off the end of that year with uh, literally like two or three, almost three months in uh, Seattle, you know, so it was a lot, but that's basically how that came about. And I do have to say, thank God for that call and thank God for my wife just saying like, Hey, why say no? You never know what's going to happen. And you, you love working with Ethan. Like, why not, why not do it? What's the worst that could happen is that you did a fun run with Ethan and those guys. And, <laughs> and you know, you went off, you went on and did Diana or whatever, or maybe whatever happens, that's the worst that could happen. So, and thank God she did. Cause it's, it's really been, I know this is what everyone says in an interview, but it's been a blast. It's just, Oh, that's a fun show. That's Such a fun me. show. Tell me how Gary Selickson fits into this whole picture. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I'll try, um, I was, not to get too far in the weeds with this, because I was just learning about how these things work. The theater that one goes to when you do an out-of-town show, they have to agree to pay for certain things for the production to come in, because ultimately they hope that they're going to be known as a theater who launches Broadway shows. And they're also hoping to pay a lot of, make a lot of money selling tickets on that reputation. Um, I was only contracted to play um, Diana until opening night. That was not, that was decided ahead of time. Um, Ian Eisendrath, God bless him, was uh, kind enough to insist to the La Jolla people, like, we really need the drummer. That's really not a local guy kind of thing. We really need the drummer. And the compromise was, okay, you really need your drummer. You'll develop the show, you'll do previews, and on opening night, you, he will have taught a local drummer because, you know, it's, an, um, it's a musician's union thing. They try to employ as many local musicians as they can, which, again, God bless them, that's great. 
but that's what happened. Without throwing anybody under the bus, the, <laughs> the person that had agreed to learn the show, long story short, just was not musically up to it. They were not a good choice. The person that chose them didn't do a good job choosing. The person that accepted it, the drum chair, and, and agreed to learn my book was biting off way more than he could chew. And he basically, not basically, he literally bailed at the last second. I mean, we were about a week and a half, two weeks away from me being contractually obligated to leave. Now, in the meantime, I had already taken a, 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 a Japanese tour, very short, but a Japanese tour with Avril Lavigne, because I'd been told that I was gonna be released as of opening night of February X or whatever it was, I don't even remember now. So long story short, they started panicking. They tried to find other local guys. Uh, I would never say that there are no local guys that were qualified, but I will say factually that the guys that were tendered, <laughs> let's just say that were recommended, were not up to it. And, uh, and I do have to say at the time, the drum book changed quite a bit at the time. That had kind of evolved into a kind of a monster drum book. And it wasn't because I intentionally made it I never do that. I never, ever, ever do that. But it had, uh, it had evolved to something really, it was already fairly involved when I made up the parts that I made. And then uh, uh, when John Clancy came in and wrote the, the orchestrations and the drum parts, and he's an amazing orchestrator, especially for drums, it was, it was really, really involved. I mean, the kind of thing where you go, okay, you open the show, you you know, big crashes, rock drum fills, hit the groove for eight bars. And then on the ninth bar, you have two beats to pick up the marching sticks and be at the military snare drum to play some very clean rudimental stuff before you throw those down and play two bars of mallets. And then you are back to a drum groove that is definitely not just a two and four groove. It's kind of involved. <laughs> and like, there were very few straight up and down, you know, two and four grooves in that show at that time. I mean, of course they had two and four, but they weren't just two are very, very involved and, uh, and beautiful. I, I love them, but you know, again, uh, taking way too long to say that they were involved and the guys weren't up to it. Uh, Gary Seligson, this is crazy. Long story short, it turns out, okay, we don't have a choice. We need somebody that we know we can learn this quickly. Uh, drummers came and went, some guys were called, some guys could do it. You know, all this, maybe they, for whatever reason, the guy that could do it and the people felt confident could, could do it quickly was Gary Seligson. This dude learned this book and like, I think he learned it for the bulk of it in like 48 hours, flew out to California. I kind of helped him uh, as much as I could to kind of hone in on like things maybe that I was playing that weren't written yet. And, you know, actually transcribed exactly. And this dude came in and like learned it. <laughs> And, for, you know, from what I was told, like, just nailed it and did the rest of the run. He actually did the entire performance, you know. I, I mean, I did the previews, and then he, after opening night, he took the rest of the thing. He just came in and swooped in and, like, saved it. So he was amazing. And ironically, I'm working with Gary now because Gary is in the percussion room over Mrs. Doubtfire right now. Exactly. That's why I brought that up. Oh, yeah. It's actually, <laughs> thank you for asking that because I am way more comfortable tooting someone else's horn. And that horn deserved to be tooted because he swooped in there and just, you know, it was, 
it was, I wouldn't, you know, it wasn't necessarily Frank level, Frank Zappa level, but it was involved, man. It yeah. Was when I was, involved. when I was talking to Sammy Marandino about it, he was talking about how Clancy wrote such great drum grooves and drum parts to that show and how he's basically doing, instead of doing what Sammy would do or doing what you would do, he's basically doing what John is writing down. And since John mm-hmm. is a drummer, yes, he knows what's right and he knows what's interesting. And he can make things very, very uh, complex, but fun to play. I remember when I was subbing for Bill Lanham at Cats, John Clancy wrote the drum book for that show, the revival. And there's like a, a fight scene. I don't even know what cats they were. Mr. McCavity <laughs> or Mr. Mistopheles, whatever. Two cats oh, fighting at the end. <laughs> and uh, there's this like drum battle and it's just not drum battle, but like big, massive drum part. And it was so intricate, but it was so much fun to play. And it was cool because John Clancy wrote it. So, yeah, it's the whole thing of, of you doing something and then Gary taking over and then you both winding up on a different show. It's, it's, it's this business. A lot of people know each other. That's why I'm right. glad I'm able to talk to so many of my colleagues like this, but we're all kind of connected and we're doing this at a high oh, yeah. level and you have to be ready. You have to be prepared and you have to be uh, uh, ready to do, ready to step in at a moment's notice. Like you have to be like a superhero sometimes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I feel like uh, that was the ultimate sub gig. Yes. We're talking about, I mean, that's always what Gary did is nothing, no different than what any sub ever does when they come into a show, except for the acceleration of like, you need to digest this material so quickly. So, so, so crazy quickly. And by the way, we're talking about full drum set part, uh, the SPD triggering sounds uh, from the SPD, as well as a snare two, as well as a glockenspiel, as well as, uh, shaker parts, you know, drop the right stick, pick up the shaker, play this, but then drop your left stick and play this on the glockenspiel. And mm. then within two beats, you better lay in really hard because the next beat you need to be grooving, you know, really hard on like a, you know, like a rock groove or something. So yeah, uh, way more comfortable tooting other people's horns and, and Gary's definitely needs to be tooted on that level. And that definitely dovetails into things like, you know, how to get on uh, subbing on Broadway and that kind of thing yes. for sure. Not, not to take that over from you, but he's the <laughs> ultimate example of that, like killing example of that. Well, we started at the, uh, the end. Let's start at the beginning. I have no idea where you're from. California. Let me guess. Let me guess. Yeah, actually guess. <laughs> <laughs> I think you might've told me once before I, I'd say Louisiana. Oh, that's right. see, I think I, Remember us hooking up in L.A., and I yes. think I was currently living in New Orleans at the time. That's correct. Are you from right, New Orleans? Right. I'm not from New Orleans. I have family from New Orleans. I spent a lot of, lot of time in New Orleans, actually to the degree that my wife and I bought a house there, and I was kind of living between New Orleans and, and New York for about 10 years. Uh, maybe, what, nine, 10 years? When I was touring, my pop touring was so busy that it started looking like maybe... I was doing the kind of touring you could do and it didn't matter where you lived, you know, like if you're touring enough that it's like, yeah, nobody cares where you go when you go home because 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's a touring gig. But uh, yeah, originally from North Carolina. Oh, okay. Same place actually as Jeffrey Lee Campbell. Ah, guitarist Lovely, for you know, Michael Jackson's show right currently now. Currently guitarist for Michael Jackson's show. And ex-guitarist, not the least of which, ex-guitarist for Sting. Yes, which I have to read his book. I got his audio book, which I need to read. It's a story oh, about his, yeah. his time with, uh, with Sting. Yeah, absolutely. I would definitely recommend that. Of course, he's literally like my brother, so I've got like five on the shelf. <laughs> you know, it's like big, big support on that front. So from North Carolina, Raleigh? Raleigh Durham? Oh, no, no, no. That would be the big city. Mm-hmm. I'm from a town that none of you will ever have heard of that to this day does not have a stoplight. It has Damn. a blinking yellow light, and that is it. Really? Oh, tiny. Yes. Wow. Very small. All right. Well, you were born in a small town in North Carolina. And what was your first musical memory? Wow. I don't even know if I can remember my first musical memory. <laughs> I think, oh, here's a, this is, this is true. That's actually a line from Mrs. Dalper. That part's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember going through my dad's record collection, which was actually crazy eclectic for, uh, you know, a, a tiny, tiny little town in the South. And it was everything, it was like from Elvis to James Brown to like the Spinners and, you know, the Commodores and Charlie Pride, you know, it was like all over the road, you know, the jazz and big band, you know, that kind of thing. But a lot of R&B and I think mostly in terms of popular music, not to necessarily use the word pop, but popular music, it was like R&B and, and, uh, and basically rock of different kinds, you know? But uh, that's, that was our earliest musical memory is pouring through those records. And I actually missed that mentality of not having a pre-existing opinion of any of it. I really missed that. Mm. I really missed just, just going, I don't have any opinion about this music. I'm just going to take it in. Because as we get older, you know, Everything has a label. We have pre-existing, you know, even if we want, sometimes we give props to stuff that maybe ultimately doesn't deserve it because we want to like it so much and vice versa. But, you know, mm-hmm. anyway, to answer your question, my first musical memory was digging through those records, man, those, those albums and LPs, you know. Did you have um, family that were musicians? I did. My dad was a guitarist, uh, still is. Um, not on a professional level. My uncle was a professional and he very, he vacillated between professional and semi-professional. And, um, you know, he played keys, he played keyboards and guitar. My dad plays guitar. I was around music. I, I definitely was not one of those households where I had access to constant live music where I hear drummers talk about, you know, going to church and watching the drummer play or going to a jazz club. I mean, come on, man, this, this, this town doesn't have stoplight. That's, I didn't have that, you know, world was a lot, lot bigger back then. But uh, I did have a father and a mother, but particularly my father who, how should I put it? He had that ear where he liked music. He understood how it was made. He understood, and he had an appreciation for saying things like, listen to this. Oh, listen to that. I distinctly remember my father when I first started playing drums 
introducing me to brushes and going, you do know that that's what this cat is using with, you know, on this tune. You, did you know how this works? And I we didn't even have brushes. That's how like isolated, I, I couldn't go to the store and buy brushes. He literally took like little mini, uh, mini broom sticks, the little mini sweepers and showed mm. me like, this is what they do. I don't, you know, he couldn't do it, but he's like, this is how this works and put it on like a picnic table. So I'm like, they do something like this and they, that's how they make that sound. You know, Actually, that's a great idea. What the the mini the mini? Yeah, room? man, I'm about to do that, man. Uh huh. <laughs> it is right. Last show of of my, I'm bringing in some like <laughs> big ass. You get things. some fat back beats with those too. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So did you have what made you say you know what I want to play drums? Well, this is a completely unromantic. But I'll be completely honest. I played saxophone in the high school and middle school uh, bands and we didn't have anything as hip as a jazz band, but we had, you know, concert band. There's basically two kinds of bands. There was marching band and concert band. That's what we had. I played saxophone in both. And of course I was uh, in my early teen years starting listening to a lot of music on the radio. And I was like, wait a minute. Cause at the time, and I don't want to put a date on myself, but at the time, let's just say it was around that time period where there was a saxophone on everything. I'll let you guess what era that was. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, I learned a lot of those. I didn't play tenor sax, but I'd learned all those solos and those things. And uh, that's back when you would hear like a sax solo in Stone's tune, you know. Did you, you play know? the sax solo on Caribbean Queen? I did not. <laughs> but I did learn a sax solo for minute work <laughs> and uh, oh, yeah, whatever that's that right. tune was tried to, I didn't even attempt the uh, Billy Joel just the way you are. And I learned later why mm. <laughs> on alto sax. Um, but the, I guess you'd say the mercenary calculating part of me went, wait a minute. Not every one of these bands has a saxophone, but what do every one of these bands have? drums <laughs> and of course i had the the muppets animal like attraction to it to begin with and i had a very good friend of mine that was drum captain in the drum line so of course the obligatory loaned pair of sticks that lived in my back pocket and then i practiced my half-assed rudiments as much as i could on whatever coffee table was available and eventually ended up in the drum line i think i started when i was i started playing when i was 17 yeah i started playing when i was 17 wow did you have a big drum section in your high school band? It was fairly big. I'd say, you know, how those things go with cl upperclassmen and freshmen going. I think at the time I was in it, I think there was three or four snares, um, tenor drum, you know, trio, a trio or quads. They, I think at the time you had a trio drums and like maybe at least a three or four bass drum line. Okay. So, you know, decent size. Okay. And I was very lucky, very lucky that the friend of mine that I mentioned, his name is Nicholas Holland, by the way, he's, he's actually, um, he's still, he's actually a professor at a university now. Um, he was very involved in drum corps. And as anybody that knows that world knows that even if it's ancillary, even if it's secondary, that type of rudimental drumming and that type of thing is like, if you get exposed to that, I would never, I've never ever had drum corps chops, but, I guess, depending on the company you keep, I've had pretty good chops because of that. Because when I went on to college, it was also drum corps style marching. So I don't have, my hands are crap now, but 
I at least understand if I were to have a spare two, three weeks to really start digging in, I would understand how to get back to that because of that exposure. That's not to say that I, I could get there, but you know. Did you start out playing match grip or traditional? Matched for sure. And do you go back to traditional sometimes? I forced myself into traditional just because, you know, you, I think we all remember that era where, you know, the post GAD era where all of a sudden there was your awareness of GAD came up and then your awareness, of course, of Dave Weckl and then Vinny Kaliuta. And then you're like, of course, you're like, oh man, you're not serious if you don't play traditional grip. <laughs> <laughs> so I dug into it super, super hard and I, you know, I got it together. I played traditional grip for years and years. I mean, like the entire first, what, five, six years in New York and, you know, and college, um, you know, before that, you played trad grip. Oh, did you, you started out playing matched and then, and then went to my jazz slash fusion arrow where, you know, I was learning that way. Uh, and this is again, completely unromantic answer. <laughs> and, uh, it was literally, I was playing match, uh, traditional for everything, no matter what it was a hard hitting gig or whatever. And when I had been playing with Gavin DeGraw in New York, way before he got signed, in the original band, which was Conrad Korsh on bass, uh, Oz Noy on guitar, myself on drums, and Gavin DeGraw playing piano and singing. And that was all fine and good around New York. And uh, I won't go into the whole story. I'll fast forward to when I actually started touring with him right after the record came out. And that, that band had evolved for different reasons I won't go into where the drummer was expected to hit crazy hard. I don't think it really called for that at the time, but I was the new guy that was back in the fold. And I was like, all right, this is how they used to doing it. And long story short, I was like, I'm just not hitting hard enough. And I'm not Vinny and I'm not Stuart Copeland. Oh, that was another big one with the, with the trad grip, by the way. And I can't deliver. I would need a month or two of shedding specifically to hit really hard with trad grip. And I don't have that. I'm already out here on tour. So flipped over the matched. And that's, you know, lived that way for a long time. As a matter of fact, it's embarrassing, but I, up until very recently in like the last two or three years, have been able to have the time to go back with match grip and try to really hone back in my left hand finesse to, to the level that I had it with trad grip. Mm. Because, I mean, and not to brag, it's just actually, it's, it's really depressing, but I didn't have time to do that. I was working. You know, I did Gavin DeGraw and then I did Regina Spector and then I did uh, and then the Avril thing came along and then I was going between Avril and Gavin and also subbing on Broadway shows or whatever. And like I didn't have time to do that thing that you have time to do when you're 18 or 19 or 20, which is spend five and six hours a day doing something like that and really trying to hone in. So I'm just now getting a modicum of what I consider to be a modicum of finesse back in my left hand. <laughs> After high school, you went to college. You went to a music school. And why did you choose the one that you went to? Yes, I went to East Carolina University. That's in North Carolina? It is. It's in Greenville, North Carolina, which is kind of close to the coast. It's a good music school. Okay. Now, why that? You didn't want to go too far from home? Or you you knew about Um, it? A couple of things. Uh, It was actually funny. At that age, my father was the one that had believe it or not, insisted on music school, which is ironic because nobody ever says that hardly, right? <laughs> mm. His thing was, 
if you want to do music professionally, don't be a dummy. Like go to school and at least learn how to do it correctly, right? And uh, it wasn't exactly Berkeley, but it did have an incredible, uh, incredible jazz instructor by the name of Carol Dashiel. And uh, it was it was great. And I actually did uh, get accepted to Berkeley after that. Actually, I was, my plan was to go to Berkeley before I landed a really lucrative gig there in North Carolina and decided to stay and gig and work with this band. What was your major there? It was music performance. Did you get into a lot of jazz when you were there? Like a lot of people that go to music school, they wind up really getting into jazz and thinking that that's the only music that is necessary to listen to for the rest of your life. And if you don't listen to jazz, were you that kind of jazz snob for a while? I was never, ever a jazz snob, but I ironically had been, of course, a jazz snob would say this, it's not jazz, but I had actually started delving into jazz a little bit before I even got to college. And I, to be honest, I don't even remember how that happened. I just did. And I got, uh, so I already had the jazz bug. Oh, I'll, this is a little funny snippet. I just so happened to go to high school with Billy Cobham's daughter. And I'm embarrassed to say when I met Curry Cobham, uh, everybody said, oh, her dad's a big famous drummer. And I was like, okay, who is he? His name is Billy Cobham. I didn't know who that was. No idea who Billy Cobham was. So of course I looked it up. I think maybe that's how, I think that's, maybe that's how I, I started. I mean, already, you know, I already liked a lot of jazz, but there's a very big difference in liking jazz and like playing it and understanding it and, you know, that kind of thing. So I kind of had the jazz bug a little bit by the time I showed up there. Did you get into rock and I know you said you grew up on like soul and funk and, 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 and Charlie pride and, and other (laughs) musical influences Were there any specific drummers that you like idolized when you were in high school or in college that you were like, that's how I want to play. I I did, but they were kind of the obvious ones where I think when you're, especially when you're kind of a sheltered environment, like I was musically sheltered, it's not so much the drummer that you like as much as the music, the band that they're in, you know, I'm sure at one time I would have told you that, you know, Charlie Watts was the, the end all drummer of all time. And you're like, then you realize like, well, okay, wait a minute. Not that he is the king of a certain thing. You know, I'll never say that he's a king of a certain thing. But as your perspective grows, you realize like, well, greatness really depends on the parameters of what you're doing at the moment. You know, Charlie Watts level greatness is not the same greatness as what I've seen with, you know, people like Carter McLean and uh, Tommy Igo playing Lion King. Different kind of greatness, but still great, you know. So, sorry, I know I'm like dodging the question, but yeah, I liked the drummers that loads of people like I always love Zig. I always love Zigaboo. I mean, I always love the meters because I grew up with that. You know, I grew up with like New Orleans music in the house and, and, and relatives from New Orleans that would like play stuff. I always loved Zig. He might have been like one of the first New Orleans drummers where I actually knew his name and knew that, you know, because he was in the meters. And then you realize that he played on all that other stuff. And a lot of the other guys were, you know, the same guys that anybody would say. I had my Gad phase. I had my uh, Weckle phase. I had my uh, Dennis Chambers phase, you know. 
and you know, you realize that as you, as you get older, like there is no phase. It's just, you're just really learning to appreciate what everybody's bringing to the table. You know, I think my answer to that question would normally be like, who's your favorite drummer? Well, I don't know. What are we playing today? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like there's nobody, nobody better for the police than Stuart Copeland. But do I wanted to hear him play New Orleans funk? Not at all. <laughs> Like there's do nobody. I want to hear play with the police. I do not. <laughs> right. There's nobody better to play with Rush than Neil Peart. Do I want to hear him play jazz? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know. Although I will always, always give it up to anyone on any level at any age that has sincerely taken their foot and put it in a different pool and genuinely tried to start swimming. Yes. You know? and, he, and he did that too. He did that. He, did. he tried. He did. Can't say he didn't. You know. Right. When you graduated or finished school, you're like, you know what? I want to go to New York and I want to play on Broadway shows. <laughs> or what did you say when you graduated? You know, this is what I want to do. I want to go to L.A. I want to go to Nashville. I want to go to New Orleans or New York. And why did you do what you did? Well, mine was a little bit of a different arc because I had been accepted to Berkeley and I was ready to go to Berkeley. And then I got the offer to play in a, I would say a regional band named Mr. Potato Head, by the way. <laughs> and uh, I hate to sell it short by saying it was a cover band. I mean, essentially, I guess it was. But I always say that's the band where I not only learned how to play pop music, I learned why you play pop music that way. And I learned that when people say pop drumming, as if it were this kind of simplistic little thing, this cute thing, you know, that is not somehow as regal as jazz or as rush or as chick Korea. I'm like, yeah, you, you don't really know that depth of the history of pop music, do you? Mm. Because uh, in that band, they had made this commitment to, uh, to play only music from the seventies, which included stuff that Roger Hawkins played on with Paul Simon, um, stuff that Bernard Purdy played on with Steely Dan Stuff that, uh, let me see, I'm trying to think of, uh, God, the set list from back then. It was uh, P-Funk. Uh, you like, it was, a, it was like, yo, we're going to play pop music. And like, if you listen to some of those grooves that I really, really, really dug into and really tried to play. Oh, Lady Marmalade, you know, um, stuff like that. We were like, yeah, this is not just two and four. Anybody that thinks that that's all pop music is, you know, yes, pop music is um, squeeze. Yes, pop music is ZZ Top. Yes, it is. But it's also Kid Charlemagne. And it's also, um, oh, well, who doesn't know? Like Rosanna, you know, pop music has a lot of different kinds of drumming. Now, not so much. <laughs> now pop music isn't made with drummers mostly at all. It's literally made with, you know, samples from pop drummers at best. And then... Well, that's another C. Uh-oh, tangent alert. <laughs> I joined this band, learned a lot, learned to take, uh, learned to take pop music, pop drumming just as seriously as I took anything else. And uh, then that band ended uh, in a way that I won't go into right now. It was really great. It's like the other members of the band had actually gotten signed to Sony Music uh, and under a deal, and I was going to be without a gig. So I decided to move to New York. And uh, I, to be honest, Broadway drumming was not on my radar at all. 
it wasn't at that was a time period it was like wow you can you can you can join bands that get signed or you can do jingles or you can do recordings or you can you know maybe you'll end up a drummer on a talk show <laughs> whatever you know and when i got here thank god jeff campbell who is uh who i did not know hardly at all i had only met like once or twice back in north carolina it was um would talk to me about Broadway and I slowly started realizing like what a high, high level of musicianship that was on Broadway. Uh, that era was at the tail end of the era where quote unquote real players considered Broadway something that you did if you kind of maybe had to. That was the era. I'm sure younger listeners going to be like, what, when was that ever? <laughs> yeah. There was a thing. Yep. That was a thing. So uh, I'm sorry that your question was moving. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't on my radar at all. I was in original bands. Uh, I actually joined an original band that got signed to Interscope. I did uh, weddings to pay the rent. I did club date work. I did singer-songwriter gigs, as they call them back in the day, where you play at bitter end, you know, for four four times a week with different people. <laughs> I did trio jazz gigs. I did, I did do jingles, ended up doing a lot of jingles. I did recordings for whoever wanted to record there self-produced records or whatever. I did all of that stuff. I literally did anything. Uh, my favorite gig I ever did around that era was at Rikers Island with a salsa band with a wow. conga player and uh, Timbali uh, named uh, Frank Valdez. It was like as legit as salsa can be and still have a drummer, like still have a guy on drum set. It was at Rikers Island. It's like, I literally took every gig, every gig, unless it was just, you know, it had to be a crazy gig <laughs> like that was, you know, there was no upside to it for me not to do. I literally just did everything I could possibly do. And then Jeff Campbell was nice enough to recommend me to Chris Parker and said, this kid grooves, he reads, he's conscientious. If you ever need a sub, you should consider him. And what was Chris Parker doing at the time? He was playing drums on Saturday Night Fever. Ah, on a set of the very first version of the Roland V drums. Wow. Yeah. So you went and watched him play and did you start subbing for him? I did. So what did you do to prepare to sub? You didn't know much about subbing. Like what did you, how'd you prepare? I had, uh, I do what I recommend everybody does when they learn a show is you cockpit simulate as much as you can so if the drummer is playing with a four-piece kit with the 12 inch tom and a 14 inch tom then that's what you should have if the drummer is playing with v drums well obviously we can't go out and buy v drums but you do the best you can i had a set of yamaha uh, what was that i can't remember the name of the dtx i think and you know just to get used to playing on electronic you know, that my drummer instinct to hit drums a certain way and, you know, it was kind of like, no, this is going to be, and to remind myself, oh, this is a patch change. To remind myself, this is a page turn. This is, you know, I practiced that thing inside, outside. And to be honest, even though those programs, those the program drums on that show were, were absolute abysmal, <laughs> not only did they not sound like anything that were on those records, but <laughs> It was just bad sounds in general, but that wasn't my call. It's like whoever designed the, you know, whatever. Um, but it was kind of a good thing because at least I was, you don't have to have your touch and your dynamics together as much when you're hitting a pad. You know, if you're subbing a show and you're playing two and four on the snare and you're 
you have the right patch, well, you know, you're making the same sound as the stage is used to hearing, you know? So you wind up getting there and your first show, was it a success or was it train wrecks? It was a big success. Actually, Chris, for some reason, Chris ended up leaving the show to stay out on the road with somebody or some project he was doing. And I ended up actually finishing the show out. I got a call from the contractor said, uh, are you busy for the next four or five weeks, six weeks, whatever. And I ended up just finishing out the run. Oh, that's great. That's um, cool. John Berger was actually on percussion and I think he subbed the drum chair as well. I think he also did a bunch of those as well, if I remember correctly, but uh, that was a great time. And around that time it dovetailed into uh, subbing at Rocky horror which the band was on stage. And that was also Joan Jett, by the way. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Joan Jett was in Rocky Horror. They was, the band was on stage. It was, as you can imagine, this crazy visual, just nut fest <laughs> of, of fishnets and, <laughs> and, and leather bras and everything. It was, it was a terrible gig. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> how, how bad could it be? It's fishnets and, and leather, you know, and leather bras. And Joan Jett. And man, Joan Jett. I had a crush on her when I was in high school, man. Just oh, who didn't, man? Mm-hmm. So you were, that was your gig or you were subbing for somebody else there? No, I was subbing for Clint DeGannon. Ah. Who was, yes. who's been an amazing uh, friend in terms of definitely used me for several things. I started, I subbed on Rocky, which was actually a good, a good uh, stepping stone, like uh, Saturday Night Fever, as you can imagine, was at least technically speaking, a lot easier to play. And then Rocky, it was basically a rock show, which I was definitely qualified to do. Um, but, you know, still trying to make good sounds and like while playing hard, you don't play like arena hard, but you play really hard. And that was great. He recommended, he ended up recommending me to Tommy Igo to play on Lion King. So tell me about the experience at Lion King. I understand a lot of people have tried to sub at that show and, and didn't necessarily succeed because Tommy, I guess, sometimes would conduct and he'd be a pretty much a taskmaster. I don't know how, what it was like because I never tried, but was it, very, was it very difficult to play that show? First of all, yes. And I will tell you without reservation that the jump between being prepared, I mean, I feel like people sometimes think that it means that they're a good drummer or a bad drummer if they can do certain things. It's sometimes it's just a matter of, are you really steeped enough in all these different things to control these things in real time as you play a show? And it was everything that I had not had before then. Uh, It was playing on these, uh, by the way, I've subbed that show on both versions when it was in the old theater with Tommy and then years and years later, because the show's over 20 years old, end up uh, subbing for Carter as well. At the time, my experience, it was intense. It was really, really intense. Back then, they wouldn't, you would have to sub your first time and Tommy was sitting next to you just in case you crashed and burned. That is how intense it was. Um, And uh, thank God it didn't happen. I played my first show. And to be honest, I don't know how he I mean, everything went okay. I'm certainly, I certainly don't feel like I played my best, but I didn't get pulled off. And he said, congratulations. The conductor says, you're pretty much good. There's some things here and there I can work with you with, but you know, we're going to move ahead with this, which, you know, was a huge compliment to me because he's just a monster. 
and not just as a monster as a drummer. I mean, we're talking about a cat who can conduct the entire orchestra, you know? Um, we're talking about a cat who could play the gig on, you know, 10 drums or two, mm-hmm. you know, like that kind of chops. Uh, so I'm trying to make sure I answer the question you asked. It was intense. Yes, it was intense. Oh my God. It was intense. Uh, so I have a question for you. Another question for you. Uh-huh. Uh, Shannon Ford addressed this and I'd like to bring it up again since we're talking about playing such an intense show. When somebody is either sitting next to you or just really making sure that you do the right thing and they say, you did a great job, but you got to work on this, 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 and this. Mm-hmm. How do you uh, approach getting notes? Um, I think you getting notes, like receiving them. Yeah, receiving them. I mean... Uh, I guess the only thing I could say to that is like, uh, make sure that you, I would say, make sure you understand why it came out the way. Like a lot of times you think that you're playing a certain way or a certain volume level or a certain intensity. Um, I'd say, try to take it. I would say, try to take the notes literally and also don't forget to take them broadly because sometimes depending on the note that you're getting, because they're at least even the even the best musicians and the best conductors are not necessarily drummers. So, do you want to listen literally when they say the kick drum was a little heavy in that section? Yes, you do. Do you want to take it too literally when they say, "Oh, that section felt a little lazy," or that section? You don't, you know, really step back and remember. Well, how did it feel when I played that? Or was I having trouble with the kick drum pedal at that point? Or um, you know, I'm saying, I think, remember to take the notes literally and also broadly and not literally, because sometimes being too literal, that's a great example. I've got a note at Lion King, like you, you really, your groove is great. Your time is great. That's why you're here. That's actually one of the big reasons that, that, that he liked you, but you really also in these sections, you got to really follow the conductor a little more closely. Well, what did young Rodney do? I was so literal that when a subconductor was in there and his time was not quite what the main conduct, I was going with every little quarter note. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, you know, and that's a wisdom thing when you have to know the show so well to realize you have to be confident and go, listen, I don't, not every beat, you know, I, but not to get too far down that concept, but that's a good example of too literal. I would say my big thing is make sure that you literally listen to them and you can't disagree. You can go, what does he mean? The snare drum was too loud. That's what a groove is supposed to sound like. No, number one, it doesn't matter what you think. It matters that you sound most like the original guy as you can. And number two, None of us, myself included, I just saw Doubtfire from the front of the house for the first time uh, a week ago, have any idea how it's translating in the house, you know? And there's a lot of things you realize from the front of the house, like, oh, well, the reason they need me to play harder there, even though it doesn't seem to make any sense, is because the cast needs this backbone to time their whatever out. Or, oh, I didn't realize that it's supposed to be absurdly loud there or absurdly soft or whatever, because that's a relative term. You know, you're serving a different master when you're playing for theater, which is a really, really 
crazy thing that I had to wrap my head around when, when, you know, you spend a lifetime going, Hey man, groove, 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 time doesn't move. And you're like, except for when it doesn't, <laughs> except for when it does, you know? <laughs> Great explanation. That's really, 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 really quality stuff. Thank you. You've heard a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. But you know, the, the more that people listen to this, the easier your road will be once you get in the seat of the drum chair yeah. of any show, whether you're subbing or actually doing a show, what Rodney just said, take notes, write that down, ladies and gentlemen. Lion King, you sub there. Tommy says you're great. You start subbing there a lot. Uh, he said I was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> you're all right, kid. And, <laughs> and, and I must say really quickly about that. It was, it was great. They had me back. I came back. I came back. It, I got into a thing. And then there was a while there where the conductor was very unhappy with how I was playing. And I went on probationary period for a gig or two there because I started overthinking some things. Mm. You know, speaking of taking notes too literally, I let it get inside my head. And kind of, I know we've all had this as drummers. Well, maybe not all of us, but I certainly have where you get so uptight about something that you didn't do correctly the first time that you do it even worse the second or third or fourth time. I don't, I don't really have a whole lot of solutions, but I will say that let's all admit that that happens and we all have to find our way through it, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Yes. He, he had me back. I had the crazy experience of playing that show while he's waving the wand and listening to every <laughs> note that I, you know, every note that I play, it's like crazy, you know? Mm. And That's then pressure. I'm so sorry I interrupted you. Yeah. Then did you go to Mamma Mia right after that? Where it happened after that? Um, then Clint DeGannon was nice enough to have me on Hairspray. Ah. So I was okay. doing, I think Rocky had ended and then I was doing Lion King and Hairspray at the same time. Hmm. But yeah, that was, uh, Hairspray was so fun because it, I will say it's so fun to play a show that's meant to be just fun. Mm -hmm. Like it's funny, never take itself seriously. Of course you want to play well. Of course that's the given, but I mean, it's just everything. And, you know, and those amalgamations of like, you know, sixties, uh, you know, pop tunes and R and B tunes and rock tunes and stuff. It was great. And that's what uh, came after, uh, after Lion King. What got you into Mamma Mia? Um, wow, that's a crazy story. I could probably do a whole other thing. Uh, again, Jeff Campbell had been nice enough to recommend me to the drummer for Mamma Mia that had not, it was not that old at all. Mamma Mia lasted 13 years. And uh, basically another Jeff Campbell uh, recommendation. It was definitely another, uh, another Jeff Campbell recommendation. And um that ended up being a great experience. Talk about a groove show, though. After what I had gone through with, you know, everything with Lion King, which, by the way, was no click at all, maybe a click track on one song, which was why it was hugely important to groove, but also follow the conductor. We're talking about a show was nothing but click. At that point, you go like, man, this is, this is nothing. Please. Oh, we're not moving the time around? Cool. Well, that's, there's like 50% of the gig I don't have to worry about. You know, of course, that's assuming that the drummer in question understands not only how to play with a click, but how to make it feel a certain way. 
Right. Because those, those Mamma Mia tunes feel very different, you know, where the beat sits on the click as opposed to something, let's say, on Hairspray, where mm. it's maybe a little more energetic and on top of it, you know, mm. or right down the middle, you know. And Ray Marchica was the drummer at Mamma Mia. Uh, he became the drummer after that era. I won't get into it, but the original drummer had some, let's I'd be compassionate about the guy. He really had some life problems and he ended up leaving the show. And Ray Marchica being a, uh, being a monster of Broadway and everybody knowing him, he, uh, he came up and, uh, sorry, I'm going to turn that off. Um, he ended up uh, being the drummer and he was kind enough to let me go back to Mamma Mia years and years later when I was back in town between tours and I subbed on uh, Mamma Mia after, around. I subbed on Mamma Mia when it first opened and then also years later when it was still open. Same thing with Lion King. I came back years and years later and all of a sudden it's been a different theater and Carter McLean is there. And he's, you know, of course he had his regular roster of guys, but eventually he let me give it a shot and, you know, which was very kind of him because I love playing that show. I do have to say that's as challenging and crazy challenging as that show is, it is also extremely gratifying to play, you know, once you have all those difficulties under your, you know, under your belt. So came to New York playing all kinds of gigs with all kinds of people. You got into certain shows, Saturday Night Fever, the Rocky Horror Show, Little Shop of Horrors, Mamma Mia, Hairspray, Lion King. But at, in between all that stuff, you're going out on tour, correct? Yes, to various. I think around this time that we're in, that's when I got the call from Gavin DeGraw to go out on the road. And I had to call Tommy and, uh, and Ray and those guys. I think maybe I was around. I think, no, I think it may have been. Yeah, it was Hairspray. Wow, that was actually a great time doing Hairspray and Mamma Mia and at the same time, and then it was time to go out on tour. Yes. And around that time, my life kind of became about recording and touring because I went out on the road with Gavin DeGraw for about two years. Wow. And then uh, I played with Regina Spector for a tour. And then... I met Avril Lavigne on tour with Gavin DeGraw and then she later on called me to come out and audition. And I, when I landed that gig, that became my life for another two years. That first, that first record, that album cycle that I toured with her on lasted two years. That was just on that record. So I didn't do a lot of Broadway in there at all because it was always, you know, kind of, and at one point I was going between Gavin touring with Gavin for a couple of months and then touring with Avril for a couple of months and then, you know, going back and forth. So it was many years. So you're talking about two years, two years of touring straight without a break. Like what, what do you mean by two years? Um, in, in the pop world, when they tour, it's like it, they'll do legs of a tour. So you will go out and do a leg of a tour and that may be two and a half weeks, three weeks, and you come home for three, four days, maybe five days, maybe six, seven days. But then you go back out and it might be three weeks on the road. In Avril's case, being an international artist, it was, we're going to do nothing but promo literally around the world for like a year. And you'll be gone for about a month at a time every time we do a leg. So rehearsals for her must have been almost a month. 
in LA and then you go out to, let's say, let's say you go and play television in Canada and you do maybe five, six television shows there. And then you take like a week off and then you go to Europe and then you, and Europe is just crazy. Cause as, as we all know, you can just reach, you know, loads of, uh, nations in the same all in the same fell swoop and you know so you might be there for like a month and then maybe you come home for a week and then you go to south america and then you know so it's a lot of touring a lot a lot of touring you know i did a bus and truck tour of a show in the year 2000 i was 22 years younger i could do all that stuff and it's nothing like what you were doing but doing a tour like you're talking about, takes up a lot of mental and physical energy. It really does. Um, can you describe, just really quickly, describe like a typical week on a, on a tour of Europe. You if get you're up doing, at, a, if you're doing a bus tour, it's a little different. Um, and believe it or not, it's actually less training if you're on a bus doing shows because you kind of live on a, I mean, you have your stuff on a bus, you, you stay in a hotel every night, but you're traveling as opposed to packing and going to the airport every time there's a new gig. So it's a little, it's a bit of a drain. I think obviously with, with any, like any other job, it depends on how, uh, the, the it based on how much you get along with everybody else in the, in the village, you know? <laughs> And I was always lucky. I've always been lucky. Like that there's literally one person I've ever toured with, like one guy that was like a pain to tour with and everybody else is, even if I never met them before in my life, before getting that gig, it's been great, you know? So describing it, you know, I had my times of missing home. I think it, I think it has a lot to do with how much you like the music you're playing, how much you like to enjoy the people you're with, you know? I think it has a lot to do with that. Did you get a chance to see a lot of the places that you visited? Like as that, a tourist? Yeah. Uh, that's a big advantage to being on tour with a big pop act like Avril, because like, for instance, we would roll into Beijing and she would have one show. We would play the show and then we maybe do a television show that next morning. And then she would be engaged for three, four days, five days doing other things that we weren't involved in. And then you're a tourist. So you go to the Great Wall or you go to, you know, experience as a tourist. I will say that was a big, huge advantage as opposed to, you know, a smaller scale tour where the economics don't really allow you to stay in the same place that long, you know? Mm. So that was, that was, that was pretty great. I got to see a lot of the world like three or four times over that way. That was pretty amazing. Uh, Last tangent alert. What's your favorite? (laughs) Favorite city to visit on the entire planet? Wow. <laughs> In the, ooh, wow. On tour? Yes, <laughs> on tour. You know what? I don't know. Wow, that's a hard one. That's a hard one. I, well, how about this? Why don't I give you the most surprising yeah. Okay. City. Yeah. I'm you know what? I do have to say, actually, the city, the favorite place to tour as a city, might might actually be Paris, just for the obvious, basic reasons. <laughs> you know, the maybe food, Paris. The elegance. The food. The language. The ambiance. That yeah, yeah. That was that was pretty amazing. 
In the States, I have to still have to say New Orleans, believe it or not. Really? Wow. In the, but, you know, you can't, you have to take that with a grain of salt because that's, you know, that's more in my blood. You know, I would love to go there even if I wasn't touring. As a matter of fact, I've literally only played in New Orleans three times on tour. When it comes to playing shows, like the most difficult show that you've ever done, would it be The Lion King? This is my new favorite quote is that there is no such thing as an easy show. Even though, you know, you would think that Saturday Night Fever is easy. Well, technically it is, but they've had subs. They used to have subs come in and completely blow it because they, they approached it as easy and they played, you know, the, the outro of the song four bars shorter than it should have been, you know. But uh, in terms of all in all checking all the boxes, I think Frozen oh, wow. and Lion King might be actually Moulin Rouge is pretty up there. Moulin Rouge is pretty up there too. I keep, I think Lion King always pops in my mind and, and whoever's listening to this have to take this with a grain of salt. It was my impression of the difficulty is stayed with me for years as opposed to it's colored my thinking of how difficult it actually is or isn't. You know what I mean? Because it's, you know, when you have to look at, you know, groove versus groove versus is this weird or is it just another, you know what I mean? It's, you know, there are grooves on Lion King that you'll literally never play ever again on any other song unless it's Lion King, mm. you know, but then again, there are some of that in Frozen, actually, you know, and there's not as much in Moulin Rouge, mainly because it's based on pop music, but there's still like some grooves that no, very few people are going to sit down and go, oh, it goes like what? Let me listen to that again. Okay, now I got it. Right. It's like, right. no, we're talking about, oh, this groove is like this. Okay. I'm going to need a half an hour to shed that slowly and make sure everything is where it should, you know, mm-hmm. but yes, those are definitely, definitely high level difficulty on those for sure. For someone that wants to do what we do for a living, what's the most important thing any drummer should know about being a success as a Broadway musician? Whether it's a sub or it's your gig it doesn't matter. It's not about you. I had to completely drill that in my head. I'm not the kind of drummer that ever tries to jam things in because they're cool drumistically. I'm just not built that way. However, you have to remember that if they're asking for X, Y, or Z, then do your best to put your Buddhist mind on and just go, yeah, doesn't matter. That's what they're asking for. My job right now is to do that. So I've, I can't tell you that's, that's the end result. Like try to, uh, make it your mission to deliver what is being asked for as musically as you can. Like, you know, I've, I've sub shows where I go, I just think this is a silliest groove. Why did they put this groove on this? It doesn't work. And there are reasons. And you know what? Nine times out of 10, the drummer who has the gig goes, you're right. It's silly. I hate it, but they insisted. And, you know, happens all the time. But I would say the main thing is it's not about you. It's you providing what they need for everyone else, including the orchestra. Because, you know, even the orchestra might go, oh, I don't really like that either, but I've played with it for 19 months. And now if it's anything else, it's going to throw me and you don't want to do that. You know, it's the main thing, not about you. (laughs) What do you look for when hiring subs for shows that, that you are the uh, principal drummer for? Well, I have to admit, I haven't had that many shows of my own, but I will say that's, that's actually come up recently. And I, I would say the main two things is, 
does the material in this show naturally fall to this person that's coming in? In other words, it's not a matter of, I mean, we can all play anything given the time. Like if you give me enough time, I can literally play anything in the world, but that's not the point. Does it lay on my particular sensibilities fairly naturally? Right. That's not to say that if I subbed on in the Heights, I wouldn't have to sh shed my salsa, baby. Woo. <laughs> but does it lay naturally enough that I can turn my attentions to other things? That's what I would look for. First of all, is like, does the person, does she already play this kind of music? All right. Well, yeah, that's cool. Not to say that I wouldn't use somebody that doesn't. I'm just saying, you know, is it going to be that? Do they seem like a conscientious enough person that they're going to really take this seriously? Because some people don't really understand that that's the thing. And do they get it? Like, do they already understand going into it? A lot of the things that you and I have just talked about today. Do they already understand that it's really all about basically sounding as much like what I play as you can, because that's always the sub's job, you know, and not that can you do your version of it? Like, can you really do it comfortably? And can you do it comfortably enough that you could take direction? Like, not just can you play this groove? Can you nail this groove with the click? Could you play it 50% softer if the conductor asked you to do it in the middle of the tune? You know, that's that kind of control, that level of familiarity of, you know, um, actually John Miller just had a great suggestion the other day to me. He said, well, if you're using some people that are unknown quantities, just have them come in and play the three or four weirdest kind of off the kind of off the beaten path grooves in the show and see how it feels. I was like, wow, how simple and yet how brilliant. By the way, that's what Tommy Ego had me do before he, I ever played Lion King and Carter actually had me do. When I came back, he's like, I know it's silly. I know you've played the show, but I know I'm sorry, man, but can you mind just playing this thing and just make sure it feels okay? And I played like two and a half bars and he's like, stop, it's fine. I get it, you know. But uh, that's the main thing I would look for. You know, someone who 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 is going to not be a huge, huge shift in their life to play what I'm playing, you know, cause that's not fair to them either. And it takes away from their ability to put it towards more important things like taking direction on what you're playing. That'd be the main thing I would think. So as a sub for Moulin Rouge, Frozen, The Lion King, Little Shop of Horrors, Rocky Horror Show, Saturday Night Fever, and we both subbed at The Color Purple, the last oh version. i forgot about the color purple oh my god that was a fun show to play oh my god. i knew there was something i was forgetting in my list and that you and i shared yes. i knew that what should a sub drummer never do when subbing a show um there's a lot of things that have probably already been covered so I could probably list those off just to do the check the box, but I'm going to say something I think not many other people have mentioned that I have found is incredibly important, incredibly important. When you sub a show, if the, your, this has to do with your monitoring, your headphones or your in-ear monitors or whatever it is you're using, use what the guy is using. If they're using ultra phones, 
use ultra phones. I don't care if you have your brand new set of $2,000 things that you love. It is going to make the mix sound different and mixes everything when you are subbing. I've actually screwed up subbing shows because I made that mistake. I mean, to the point where I honestly did not know if I was going to get through the show. And I kept thinking, how does this sound so bad? Why is the quick click so soft? Why are the symbols so loud? What? Well, because you're not monitoring with what that person used when they built that mix. So beyond all the other things that are also very important, like somebody mentioned to me that somebody subbed a show once and they're a lefty and they turn the entire kid around. Obviously don't do that. <laughs> I'm going to skip all those things because I'm sure drummers, you know, way smarter than me have done your show and mentioned them. I'm going to say, make sure you list, you monitor with what they use. Now, if they have a set of $4,000, uh, JH audios. I understand that you can't go out and buy those, but make sure that you, as close as you can, monitor with what they're monitoring with, because mixes everything, mixes everything with what we do. How do you know what is MP or Forte or whatever if you're not hearing what the normal guy hears? You're just, you know, you're not going to play the same. It's not going to read the same in the house. That is the most important thing in the year 2021 when we have millions of options that used to not be available back when I started using this. Better is not necessarily better. It can make you crash and burn. So that's my big one with that one. Don't ever do that if you can help it. If the guy's using in-ears, use the in-ears. If you don't have them, invest a little. Obviously not $4,000 because someone who's just getting into subbing can't do that. If they're using ultraphones, spring for the 200, whatever, go buy ultraphones. Whatever they're using, use what they use. That's my big two cents. <laughs> Speaking of gear, what kind of uh, gear do you use? Um, a Pearl, proud Pearl endorser, proud Sabian endorser. I've been a Remo guy my entire life uh, and also Vic Firth. What projects are you working on at the moment? Anything um, outside of, of Broadway theater? don't really have anything that I'm working on at the moment. There's a slight possibility given this time off that I might be getting back on a tour that I had previously not been able to do with Avril. But oh, that, good. Remains, that remains to be seen. We're not, I think that's, I'll say no more about that because we don't know what's, you know, <laughs> mm. what's ever going on with that. But, um, you know, I think uh, I will try to use this time to work on the things that we discussed before. Like, Hey, this is a great time to, keep up the work on the left hand and to get this room together and like work on my recording chops, you know, and knowing me, I'm a little OCD. I might actually get out some of these doubtfire grooves and try to get them a little closer to where I want because they're mm. never there. <laughs> they're never really where I want them, you know? So real quick, going back to Mrs. Doubtfire, you were in previews or were you open already before 2020? We were three or four previews into the preview process, okay. uh, which I'm assuming if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know that that's around, you know, several weeks, what, about three weeks you always do or four weeks of previews. So we were literally three or four previews into it. And this time around, you reopened when? We re our opening night, our reopening night was December 5th. We actually opened on December 5th. And then immediately we're off for a played a week and then we were off for a week and then we came back and now we're on nine week hiatus. So <laughs> where can people find you on the internet? 
Oh, there is a reconstruction going on, but you're welcome to see that pre-reconstruction at www.rodney-howard.com. Okay. And uh, the reason it had to be dash is because there is actually a Rodney Howard Brown televangelist type dude. <laughs> and every time you put up Rodney Howard drums, it's like one of his sermons comes up <laughs> with the band behind him, which is hilarious if you know anything about me, because, you know. Thank you once again. And uh, I will see you sometime soon in person. Yes, you will. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It was great to be on. And I have to say, if this is still going to be part of it, I've really enjoyed watching everyone else on here. I've actually a lot of food for thought, a lot of cool insights. Lot, you know, we all assume that it's kind of the same for everyone. It really isn't. You know, it's good to hear how, you know, other people, people's path went and like, you know, their workarounds and, you know, their problems or their issues and their solutions and everything. It's, it's, it's really cool, man. I yeah. like it. Thank you, man. Thank you. Stay tuned for more. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. Head over to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube page where you'll find unedited conversations that I've had with some of your favorite musicians. On the YouTube page, you're going to find bonus content that I don't feature on my Instagram page or here on the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And click on that little bell at the top so that you'll be notified when a new video is uploaded. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more.